Well, indeed, Christ is as much risen today as he was last week. And we give praise for the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and the victory over death that he has given to us. I think of, as we contemplate the resurrection, maybe the image I have, that the thought that comes to me is exhaling. <laughs> um, I, know, I know that when we're in glory, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> Just a big exhale. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the beginning, if you will, of the, uh, you know, the burden of death being finally removed. Yet, of course, we know that we still live within this veil of curse and judgment, uh, that Christ is the firstfruits, but we still live um, with death looming before us. But the day will come, brothers and sisters, where it is in the rearview mirror, and it will truly be swallowed up in victory, as, as the Apostle Paul says. And I just, every now and then, my soul gets little glimpses of what that will be like, uh, that kind of relief. You, we all... We all know what it's like to be on the other side of something that was looming um, and just the relief, uh, the unwinding that it brings. And, and that day is coming for us in eternal glory, and it's going to be just unbelievably spectacular. Well, it is our habit here at Affirmation um, to follow the church calendar loosely, um, but it's here, particularly around Holy Week as it's known, um, and then in the season of Easter that I think it is most helpful. Because the church calendar, in the wisdom of the tradition that formed it, did not make Easter a day, but a season. And I just have enjoyed this over the past decade of, of relishing in the resurrection. And not, okay, Easter, and now we move on. Evars is right. Every Sunday is Easter Sunday. And if that's true, then, then it's worth spending some time on Easter. Then it seems like the resurrection would not be a one-day-a-year contemplation. And the wisdom of the tradition says pause here. Pause. Contemplate. Reflect on the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we've made our habit over the past several years uh, to be. We have stretched it out, maybe looking at several texts about resurrection, maybe considering the theological implications of resurrection. Um, a couple years ago, we did the therefores of the resurrection. We just spent uh, six weeks in, in Romans 8, where Paul says, therefore, there is now no condemnation. And we just thought that therefore is the therefore of the victory we have in Christ. And let's just spend some time there. Um, so we've done all kinds of things, but pausing and extending our thoughts on resurrection. This year, uh, we're, we're taking up the idea of new creation. Because again, the resurrection is not merely about, uh, as we said, a miracle where a man went into the grave and then came out. It's the beginning of something. Now, my sermon last week was a connection between Jesus and his interaction with Mary Magdalene there at the tomb and Genesis chapter 2. And we, 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 we thought through that text of the, the connection. What, what is John doing in that when he tells the story of the resurrection of Jesus, particularly in this interaction with Mary, he's giving us echoes of Genesis 2. They're in a garden, and the only two that are there 
is this man, the new Adam, and this woman. And this new Adam has a pier, you know, a pierced side, and here's this woman, and he addresses her as such as Adam does to Eve. Woman, why are you weeping? And then later names her as Adam does to Eve, and he does to Mary, Mary. And so when we, we thought about that. Now, now, what is John doing there? He's telling the story in such a way that we, we are looking at the resurrection of Jesus with the lens of Genesis 2 as our glasses, our filter, so that certain parts of the story are filtered out, but certain parts of the story really come to life for us and we start making connections. But John very much wanted us to see in the resurrection of Jesus a connection to the Garden of Eden, and hence she supposes him to be the gardener. And John has been doing this throughout his gospel, and hence the way the gospel begins in the beginning. That's not accidental. It's not like John just finding a, a nice phrase and using it. John is being particular and intentional in the way he begins his gospel. And we know that because then he immediately launches into a story of creation. You know, all things were made by him and so forth. So John is saying, hey, reader, when you see and read the story of Jesus, when you're going to listen to the narrative I'm going to tell you, read it with these glasses. Put these creation glasses on and now look at the events I'm telling you and let creation story inform the narrative that I'm going to give you about Jesus and see what you see. See what you see. See what pops out to you in the story and the stories of Jesus. So what we have before us in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is, again, not just a miracle, it is the beginning of new creation. That is what John wants us to see. Yes, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in the beginning, resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, in the beginning, the word. All right, so in the beginning, Jesus. In the beginning, God. So to appreciate that then, to, to stew, if you will, in the truth of the resurrection, to think about new creation, it's good for us to go back and think about the original creation. And so our text this morning is Genesis 1, 1 through 3. And I have said before, and I'll repeat here again, that I think in some sense the entire Bible, if we could compress it down, you know, we could compress it into these three verses. There it is. The whole Bible is given to you in Genesis 1, 1 through 3. And the rest of the Bible is just the, the expansion of that story. It's just developing Genesis 1, 1 through 3. But if all you had was Genesis 1 through 3, I don't know if you could tease it all out. The name of Jesus wouldn't come to you. But it certainly is all here. So I want us to think about this, these very familiar words this morning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now, a couple things right at the outset that I want us to think about in this text, and you've heard me talk about this. This isn't the first time we've ever thought about this text, so some of this stuff will, as I say, it will come back to you. Maybe some things will be new here. But a couple uh, uh insights right from the beginning or just thoughts right from the beginning that 
you notice at the beginning we have a Trinitarian um, uh, revelation here, if you will. Okay, we've got a Trinity. And we, we might not see it at first, right? When we first read it, it just seems like a simple, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and so forth. And it seems very, it seems kind of simplistic, just a Unitarian God. And here's where now John kind of helps us come back and informs what we're reading in Genesis 1. But we do have a Trinitarian revelation here right from the outset. For one, the word God here is Elohim, which is plural. Right? It's plural. The, the, in the Hebrew, the, that little suffix im is plural. Okay? And so El, you know, like El Shaddai, you, you've heard uh, maybe names of God, that, uh, that E-L being a reference to God. But here, God is in the plural. But the word created is in the singular. You know, so it would be like if, if, we, were, if we were saying it in English, it would be like a, a, the, the, the pronoun would be plural, let's say they, but then you would, you would say the verb, you know, in, in the, you know, they creates. You know, you'd be like, wait a second, but you're using, you're using a singular, he creates. So you're saying, but, but they, they creates um, in that sense. It doesn't quite work out that way, but you get the point, right? There's a, it, it seems, it's right in the initial, there's a little bit of a jarring nature to it. I mean, so right here in the first couple, in the first couple words, we already have laid out for us this complex issue that's going to take the rest of the scriptures and even some of church history to work out what is this plurality and unity that there is in God. And then we have God creating the spirit hovering and the word accomplishing right within the first three verses. In the beginning, God created the heavens, the earth, the earth was formless and without void. And the spirit of God is hovering and God said, let there be. And there was. And if we just, again, if we're just reading it with just Genesis 1 through 3, we see two characters. We see God creating and we see the Spirit hovering. But then it's John who in his gospel informs us back and says, well, actually what he said is a person. Because in the beginning was the Word. We get that because we see the Word being spoken here. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. Okay, that's an odd way to say it, but we get that as well because the word is there and God is accomplishing things through his word. But then he says, and the word was God. And he was in the beginning. With, you know, it's like, all of a sudden the word is a he. It's not an it. And so within this text, not only do we have this plurality of God, but we have the father creating, the son accomplishing, the spirit hovering. So I just, I just lay that out before us that here, again, as, as I say, in some sense, the whole Bible is contained here for us. Now, the second initial observation is that we have a very odd thing happening here because God is creating the world, but he does it, if you will, in several stages. And this is not because God is like you and me, who we have to lay foundations before we can start building walls and roofs, right? No, no builder can come in and say, you know, I'm, I've got my own unique way. You know, I like to build the roof first, you know? <laughs> or I just like to build the whole house. No, it doesn't work that way. He, you know, a, a builder has to come in and, and do the excavation. And then you got you to gotta lay footings and build foundations and floors and then walls and then roof. Okay, that's how it, God, God can say, let there be, and there is. 
God can just build house. He doesn't have to build foundation and walls and roof, right? So when he does it this way, we have to pause and we have to reflect and say, why'd you do it that way? And that's always a little bit dangerous, asking God why, because a lot of times he, he, he tells you to pipe down when you ask why, right? Just ask Job, uh, you know. Why? Well, you know, do you, do you know who I am? Okay, so we, we slow down when we want to ask those questions. But nonetheless, we can ask a little bit. We're not prying because we know that he didn't have to create it that way. He could have just said, let there be, and the world was filled. But that's not what he does. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth that he created was without form, and it was empty, and it was dark. And filled with water. So it was, it was, it was formless, right? Water, because the spirit's hovering over the face of the deep. So it's just a big ball of chaotic sea. It has no form to it. And the spirit is hovering over it. And then God begins to go to work. And God said, let there be light, and he deals first with the darkness, and then he starts going after other things, and we're going to reflect on that in a second. But wh what's all that about? Wh why create a world that is filled with darkness and then cast the darkness out? You could have just created light. You could have just said in the very beginning, and God created light, and that was it. But I think this is worth some contemplation for us to think that God in his initial creation allowed darkness and then cast it out. He doesn't just create light. He allows darkness and then creates light and casts the darkness out. This is going, this doesn't answer our questions. Now, if, if I ask God, well, why'd you do that? He, he may not tell me. But seeing that he did that, does lay the groundwork for my understanding a lot of the rest of the scriptures because in chapter 3, he is going to allow a new darkness back into his creation. And I don't know why. But I've seen the pattern that our God is a God who allows darkness and then sovereignly dispels it with light by his word. So the pattern is laid there for me in Genesis 1. I don't understand all his motives. That, that is prying. Yeah, but what's your, what's your motive? Why are you doing it? It's just that he did. And the fact that he does this in the initial creation gives me a pattern by which I can understand what he does in the rest of the world, even when I don't understand things. The fact that he does it this way I believe, is to draw my attention to it. We, we thought about this again. Go back to Genesis 2. We thought about this in Genesis 2 as well. Why does God create man and then later say, well, this isn't good. It is not good for man to be alone, but you created him alone. Why would God create man alone and then say this isn't good? Why would God create a world empty and without form and dark, and then say, okay, now I got to do something about this. You're God. You could have done something about it right from the outset. Why go through these stages? Let's make man alone. Let's let him go name the animals, see if he can find a helper. Oh, there's no helper. Okay, it's not good for man to be alone. Put Adam to sleep and then bring forth Eve. 
we know it's not because God is figuring this thing out as he goes. Like, okay, I thought that was going to be good, but it turns out it's not. So I got to do something about it. We know that's not the case. So he does it this way and reveals it this way because he is highlighting something. He wants Adam to see. And he wants us to see that it is not good for man to be alone. Why does God create this way? Because he wants us to see something. And what he apparently wants us to see is that formlessness and emptiness and darkness are not his desire. And so he creates the heavens and the earth this way so that he may now go to work on it and draw it, stretch it out. And he stretches it out over six days to say, do you see how I deal with this? Do you see what I'm doing here? Understand this now for the rest of the story. Now, remember, as, and I don't want to get too, this can get a little too meta here, so I don't want to get, get us all confused. We can talk about the Sunday school, but it's important to remember that Moses is writing this as Israel is leaving Egypt. Right? Moses is writing this to the Israelites as they're leaving Egypt. So he's telling this story not as, a, hmm, you know, let me just, you know, nobody ever wrote the beginning. You know, let me just go back and write that. It seems like there's a market out there for a book on the beginning, right? Moses is not thinking that. Moses is thinking, what are the questions my people are asking? What are the fears my people have as we leave Egypt? I want to tell you a story. And in this story, in fact, in these stories that I'm going, this is what Moses is doing. As I tell you these stories, some of which you know by oral tradition, because they've been told by your fathers and their fathers and their fathers. But let me tell you some stories. And the stories that I'm going to tell you are going to make sense of things for you. And so even here, this is not just a story about the creation of the world. This is a story meant to help, encourage, strengthen, inform the Hebrews, as they leave the darkness and move to the light of the promised land, right? So that's, what, that's what's going on here. Okay, so we've got a Trinitarian revelation, and we've got this two-staged creation in which God wants us to see something. So let's think about it. Let's think about creation, and then, if you will, new creation. Because in some sense, that's what you get here on a small scale or maybe on a cosmic scale, you get creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then you get new creation. Six days of it, in fact, of God said, and God said, and God said, and God said. God takes his creation, and then he perfects it. And I want to argue that that same pattern is the pattern that's happening on Easter Sunday. On Easter Sunday, we have new creation springing forth out of the old. Literally, Jesus' body is transformed from glory to glory. But through him is the first fruits of a new creation. The new creation is now being finalized. Okay, so let's think about uh, here in the beginning, God does create this, if you will, first form of creation in what way? What are its deficiencies? Well, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. That means everything. Okay, that's, that's Moses' way, poetic way of saying everything. Everything is either heavens or earth in, in Moses' world, right? So God created everything. Right? All things were made by him. Nothing that was made was made apart from him, says John, says 
Paul says Moses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But verse 2, here's, here's the, the, I don't know, sour note. Here's the, oh, you know, yay, God created the heavens and the earth. Yeah, but it was, it was what? It was without form. It was empty. It was dark. So it has no structure. There's no life to it. It's empty. It's void. And it's dark. But, but, if that's a little sour note, like, oh, that doesn't sound very beautiful. Okay, but the Spirit of God was there. The Spirit of God was hovering over it. Right? Like, a, think, think of just what images, this is, this is not my poetic mind going but here, but, but what are the images that come with the Spirit hovering over it? Right, we've got I, the, the the image of a of a bird, you know, a dove perhaps, uh, that's hovering over her chicks, her her babies. You know that there's a there's a sovereignty here, there's oversight here, there's protection here, there's creativity here. The spirit of God is hovering over it. And again, think about the baptism of Jesus as the dove descends, if you will, and hovers over Jesus. As he comes up where? Out of the water. Right? The, the new creation coming up out of the water. And then there is the spirit of God hovering over him. And the voice of the father speaking. Saying this is my son. Right? So we've got. Yeah maybe a sour note. It's not the right word. Forgive me because I'm not coming up with a good word for it. But, but we've got this. This concerning thing of the earth, this beautiful thing God created seeming not to be that beautiful, but the Spirit of God hovering over it. And then in verse 3, God speaks. And he says, let there be light. And in this first act now, which by the way, comes by the power of his word, who now we know was with God and who was God himself. The Son, S-O-N, comes forth and dispels the darkness and brings light. And in so doing now begins this six-day extended work of creation by which he perfects his initial creation. So let's think about what he does. He kind of goes a little bit in reverse order in that he starts with the darkness. With a word, he casts it out. So when the deep darkness comes in Genesis 3, deep Deep, much deeper darkness than this darkness. The darkness of sin and rebellion and cosmic treason. God will speak again in Genesis 3.15. And he will bring promise and he will dispel the darkness. It's just that now that's going to get extended out over the millennia until we see the Lord Jesus Christ who is the light of the world. The light that the darkness hates but ultimately cannot stop. And even at the point of his crucifixion, you will remember that one of the sort of apocalyptic phenomena that took place at the crucifixion was the world went dark. It looked as if the darkness had prevailed. It was the darkest, if you will, with air quotes, it was the darkest the world had ever been. You thought Genesis 1-2 was dark? 
You haven't seen any darkness until you get to Golgotha where the creature is crucifying his God in the flesh. That's darkness. And then on Easter Sunday, at the break of dawn, came the light. And the darkness was dispelled. The whole gospel is right here. It's right here in Genesis 1, 1 through 3. God is a God who in his sovereign wisdom allows darkness to have its day. But who will dispel it absolutely and completely. And you and I have to reckon with that. We have to be encouraged by that. One, we have to not be Pollyannish in our, in our understanding of the Bible or our understanding of life. We can't oversimplify stuff. Don't be surprised when the world looks dark. And say, God, how could you possibly allow this? Now, I get that there are inner questions that do ask that. I get that. I get that. I get how families in Nashville could be asking that. Of course. I mean, Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane asks God, why? Why have you forsaken? This is the Son of God asking that. Therefore, I think we're free to cry out before the Lord and ask why. That, that's just our inner angst, just crying out to God. And really what we're asking in the question is, is it's a prayer. Lord, end this. Lord, undo this. That's really what we're, we're asking. But on a, on a whole nother level, read your Bibles. Eat the scroll, as the Lord tells Ezekiel and tells John. Get this story into you. Our God is a God who, when he created the heavens and the earth, the earth was dark. Our God is a God who allowed a rebellious, treasonous serpent to come into the, into the garden and to lead his image bearers away from him. Our God is a God who allowed his only begotten son to be crucified by his creatures. So don't be surprised when you find yourself in darkness. And when you find yourself in darkness, do not allow your soul to say, well, there can't be a good God. There just can't be. You have not eaten the book. You've forgotten the story you're in. You've forgotten the God who created the heavens and the earth. You have forgotten that our God is a God who has cast darkness out with a word, who has sent his son, the incarnate word, to cast out darkness once and for all, and who will on that final day cast it out. And when you go read Revelation and go back and read Revelation 21, I think we'll do that toward the end of our study when we're thinking about new creation. And I'll come back to this because, and it says, and there, there was no night. There was no night. No more dark. And I don't know what that means. I don't know what it looks like in the new heavens and new earth. And I know this is apocalyptic and visionary imagery. But here's what at least we know. There is no more darkness with everything darkness means. It's cast out once and for all. Know the story you're in. The fact that Jesus came out of the grave. It's as if when Jesus came out of the grave, the Father said again, let there be light. And there was light. So it's dark. And then we've got this joining of words without form and void. It's kind of a fun sounding Hebrew word. It's 
tohu vabohu. <laughs> it's kind of fun to say. I really forgot all my Hebrew except that. Okay, so you just got you just, you just got the extent of my Hebrew. Although I remember I remember the word for mountain because it's har, and I remember studying with my good buddy Hugo. And in in Hebrew, when you pluralize something, it's you you say it twice. So you say har har. And I remember thinking, oh, it's, it's like the pirate, you know. And I only remember that. I only remember helping him study. Say har har, you know. It's like, and I remember that was mountain. So you've got you've now you've now gotten the full extent of my Hebrew. Har and tohu vabohu. <laughs> That's what all my seminary got me. Uh, but I got so much more out of it. But um, tohu vabohu, formless and void. The same word is used for the wilderness wanderings by Israel. The wilderness was tohu vabohu. It was, it was chaotic. It was unsettled. It had no form to it. It had no life in it. When God creates the world, he creates it this way because he wants us to see that I don't like formlessness. I like form, structure, order. I don't like emptiness. I want fullness. And you see this. Now here's what we got to extend beyond chapter 3. We're not going to go into detail because I don't want to make this a whole series on the beginning of creation. But you can see it. You know it. The earth is without form and it's empty. And God starts, let there be light, and he casts out the darkness. But what he's doing in the casting out of the darkness is he is reclaiming, he's structuring. Because it's not just he says, let there be light. He separates the light from the darkness on day one. Notice there's no sun or moon. There's just light. In Revelation 21, there's no sun, we're told. We don't need it because God is its light. But he says, let there be light. And he separates the, he's creating form because the earth is formless and void. And so he separates the light from the darkness. And then on day two, he separates the sky and the sea. That is, he's giving form to his creation. He creates it formless in his sovereign purposes because, hey, children, I want you to see what I do. I'm a God who allows formlessness and then who gives it form. And so he separates sky and sea. And then he separates sea and land. But it's still empty. And so he comes back to the light and the dark and he fills them. And then he comes back to the sky and the sea and he fills them. And then on day six he comes to the land and he fills it. He orders and structures and gives form and then he begins to fill And he says, do you see? And then what's amazing is when he creates man, he says, now, I'm going to leave it there. Now you go do it. He creates man in his image. And then says, now, here's what I'm I'm giving you the keys. You see, have you seen what I've done? Do you see how I hate darkness? Do you see how I've built structure? And brought and subdued the chaos of the formless sea. I hemmed it in. I, I structured land and hemmed it in. I, I took the waters and separated them. And then I and then not only did I do that, but I filled it with life and creativity. Okay, here, here are the keys. And he gives them to his son, to his image bearer, and says, Now go. And he commissions them to go do it. 
when he creates man in that passage that we read, it's not our text today, but it's important to see that when God created a man in his image, he gave them dominion and said, go do it. You be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, subdue it and rule over it. That is, you reflect the work of your father. You reflect the work of your God. And now you go and I don't want to say finish the work, but God clearly leaves it unfinished. He creates Adam and Eve, and he says, go ahead. You fill the earth. Even with the animals, go ahead. He didn't have to. He could have just said, let there be, and the earth was populated with people. And so many other things that you and I, think about so many things you and I have right now and enjoy right now, and though we know providentially they are from God, they are not directly from God. They're directly from other human beings. The earth is filled with artifacts from you because we, we've done, we're doing it. We can't help but do it. We're wired to do it, to then go and bring form and fullness. The fact that Gary had this surgery is godlike. It is fighting back the chaos of a literal life-eating disease. And the doctors got in there like God. I say like God. I'm not being blasphemous here. I'm just, they're image bearers of God. Of course they're like God. And they subdued it. And they fought, they hemmed it in. And they said here and no further. Now, obviously we're limited. We can't do it. We haven't been able to do it with many cancers. And we can't do it with everything. But that, but that the doctors right there were doing it. It's a beautiful thing that we're called to do. We were commissioned to go and to be it. But of course, right in the beginning, we completely bob. The serpent comes in and woos us and we, rather than subduing, which we should have done, because here comes the formlessness of rebellion and treason and chaos back into the garden and Adam should have hemmed it in. Adam should have crushed his head. Adam should have said here and no further. Instead, he was subdued by it. And the whole thing began to unravel. And darkness came over the face of the deep again. And the structure of the world fell apart under the curse of sin. And man returns to the dust. And here we go. Even in Noah, the water comes back over the face, over the whole earth. And the structure of God's order is completely undone. And all of this then leads us. I mean, now, now we've got from Genesis 3 all the way to Jesus, the, the, the growth of that undoing. We've talked about use the idea of the swab in the back of the throat. You know what? Just metaphors upon metaphors. I don't know. But the growth of the darkness until we reach the darkest day of Good Friday, where once again God says, let there be light. And out of the tomb comes light, comes form, where he sets things back in its proper place. He takes death and hems it in and strips away its victory. And where there is emptiness, no life, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is complete, utter despair, comes life itself. He is the light and the life of the world. And as he comes forth from the tomb, he tells Mary, go tell them. And when they come, he says to them, 
go tell them. That is, now go do it. And we saw this in 2 Corinthians 5. In Christ you are a new creation. Therefore you no longer live for yourself. Now you go do it. Just like Adam and Eve were commissioned now, seeing how God had done it, and he established their ability to do it, they were to go do it. And now Christ has come forth from the tomb, a new creation, and he turns to you and he says, now go. Do it. You can't do what he did just like I, I, we can't do everything God can do, but we're his image bearers and we are the bride of Christ sent now to go and to tell the world. Go make disciples of all nations. Go into the chaos and the darkness and the lifelessness of the nations and bring light and subdue the chaos and rebellion of cosmic treason with the order of God's righteousness, and into the death of the world, bring the life of Christ. There's nothing to fear. You don't have to fear the darkness. You know what story you're in. You don't have to fear death. You know what story you're in. You don't have to fear the chaos of the raging sea. An image, by the way, that the Bible uses throughout the story of the Bible as the raging of the nations. You don't have, you can, God in heaven laughs. He mocks the raging of the nations. You may too, though they may kill you. I'm going through Revelation with my, my seniors, with the seniors. And our sort of liturgical opening to class, we sing a hymn and then we read responsibly Psalm 91. That's our, we, we meet every Friday. We sing a hymn. And we read responsibly Psalm 91. And I tell them, we need to read Psalm 91 as we're reading Revelation because Revelation is a troubling book. Up out of the sea comes a beast empowered by a dragon who wants to crush and kill the church. And Psalm 91 tells you they may kill you, but they can't hurt you. And you need to know that, I tell the students. You need to know that not only when you read Revelation, you need to know that when you leave these halls. And you walk into a world filled with beasts and dragons that want to destroy you or woo you away from the faith. Do not fear them. They can kill you, but they can't hurt you. And we get that from the story of creation because we know the God, our, our God, our creator. And we know that most clearly because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They killed him, but they couldn't hurt him. He was victorious, and you and I will be victorious. So brothers and sisters, that is the story we're in, and it's a story that we're going to stretch out and look at over the coming weeks. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord God, for your sovereignty. You are a God seated in heaven upon a throne before whom there is a sea, but it's a sea of glass. And over that sea is the rainbow covenantal mark of your promises to us. And we have seen those promises worked out throughout the story of your revelation, but most clearly in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is life and light itself, who when he came forth from the tomb, cast off darkness, structured the formlessness of the world, and brought life out of death. And so we pray, Lord, that you would fill us with courage, strengthen us, commission us to go forth to serve you, not only today, but all the days of our lives. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.